Hi, everybody. This is Bill. Before we get into this episode, I wanted to give a little bit of an update, actually. We talk about the coronavirus, the one that came out of Wuhan, China, in this episode. And since we recorded it a couple of days ago, it took me a little bit to get this produced. We've had some updates. As it turns out, the city of Wuhan has been closed off for the most part by the government of China. 17 people have died, uh, hundreds infected. It's spread to uh, different places. Those are some significant updates on that story. Also about Singapore, some of the people who were possibly infected have been cleared here in the city-state, and uh, there are still some other cases that they're looking at, but so far so good, I guess from that perspective. But enjoy this episode. Uh, Thank you for listening, but I did want to give you those updates. Here we go. Hello and welcome to the Foreign Influence Podcast. I'm Bill. And I'm Nikolai. And we are here as we always are. Well, often are in sunny Singapore. Yeah, very often. Sunny, sunny Singapore. Sunny Singapore, enjoying our time here in this unpolluted city city of Singapore. Because I was in Thailand last week and it was so polluted. Oh, Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. It's bad? Yeah, pretty bad. So, see the other side of the river. Yeah. It's horrible. Whoa, really? So, that is. What's it from? Because we've often talked here about how, like, the palm oil plantations burning causes it. What is it there? Uh, traffic? I'm not sure. Wow, but it's just, it's thick. It's thick. Yeah, you can see it flying in. You can see, like, this blanket of pollution Ooh. over the city flying in. Yeah. Sorry, this was Bangkok, you said? Bangkok, yeah. Wow, yeah, yeah. wow. Pretty yeah, bad. Yeah, you're not selling it. I'm not sure. No, yeah, I haven't been there, so. Well, you, you you should. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah well, it, not for the fresh air. It sounds great. It's not the best. <laughs> it's a beautiful city. Beautiful city. Well, we're going to dive into a few things here uh, before we get to our interview for today. Uh, a little later on, we're going to be talking to Bill Pazos. Mm. Uh, he's the chief operating officer of a carbon exchange that's starting here in Singapore. So we're going to talk a little bit about uh, climate change. Yeah, and, and how impact. to solve all of that pollution stuff. All of that pollution stuff. Yes, sir. But first, I just want to quickly note, from my perspective as an American, the impeachment trial is you know, underway in the U.S. Senate. As we've mentioned many times, I think we all know how this is going to turn of beauty. out. And it's a moving target, so we're going to move on to some other things that might be around for a little bit. And sadly, this one, we have a new virus uh, coming out of China. Oh, yes. And <laughs> that has hit the United States of America, apparently. It sir. did, just this yeah. morning on the day that we're here recording. Um, and I tried to look, has it gotten to Europe yet? I don't think so. Okay, well, no. this is... This happens occasionally out of China. This is a lung infection, uh, coronavirus related to the common cold, but much more serious. This one is coming out of a Chinese city called Wuhan. Mm -hmm. And um, there are uh, people here in Singapore. Beijing, Shanghai. Yeah, yeah. Um, Have been affected. One landed in the U.S., of course, yeah. Right before Chinese New Year. Right. So this is a serious issue because Chinese New Year is the single biggest travel day uh, in China, certainly, in Asia, yeah. too, because uh, it's the day you're supposed to go see your family. So if there's anyone infected, they are going to be moving around. Right. <laughs> yeah, in crowded sure. spaces. Yep. All over the place. So that will be a problem. But, you know, viruses obviously a constant enemy of humanity and our existence for a long time, right? But nowadays, and this is where I'm going to sound Panglossian, like I'm only looking on the bright side, we have modern communications technology. 
I would rather live today when we can find out that an infection is oh, there right, sure. yeah. with the infrastructure so people can quickly communicate, medical infrastructure. There's no better time to be alive to have a viral outbreak? Uh, also planes, so it's spreading. <laughs> okay, touche, sir. <laughs> so, and didn't we say in a, the conversation that we had with Bill that China is going to quadruple uh, air travel, it, air travel yeah. over the next uh, ten years or so. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. So um, all of these viruses coming out of China. Not sure that's always a good thing. No, well, I'm not saying it's a good thing, <laughs> but I am saying the communications that we have in place prevents outbreaks from just kind of leaking right. all over yes. the place. Yeah, you'll see it coming. Um, now, obviously, this is a sad story. I think uh, how many people have died in China now? Three, maybe. Yeah, uh, I think so. A handful of people mm -hmm. have died, and of course, mm -hmm. there are the infections. So it's we don't want to make too light of it, but uh, hopefully, public health officials can stay yep, ahead so. of the yeah. coronavirus uh, that is coming out. Uh, you know, another thing that's underway as we record today is Davos. Mm. If you don't know anything about this, this is the annual meeting of all of just the best, sweetest, rich folks worldwide uh, in Switzerland. You know those guys that look after us and after our democratic values and... Well, really, if you just get down on really your knees and praise the them, and <laughs> then they're happy. Yes, that's <laughs> so all you need to do. Yeah. Uh, so this is the world's richest people, and uh, they get together and they all figure out how to rule us. Huh. Yet we weren't invited. I I was, and I said no. You said no this yeah. year. Oh wow. Yeah. So no. generous of you. I, I know. You I chose know. to podcast with me instead. I did. I'm I like do I'm busy. Appreciate it. I'm busy, <laughs> guys. Make it recording. Could you move the dates? No. And they said no. I. Because everyone's private jets were already, the flight plans were in place. Which, of course, obviously, we're talking about uh, global wealth inequalities and uh, who's in charge. Um, I'm looking forward to a book that's coming out uh, recently that Nikolai here got to eat, uh, to read, eat, read over the... <laughs> I did not eat it. It's a very <laughs> thick book. <laughs> over the holidays, quite not a eating bit it. to digest. 1,400 pages, sir. But it's only in French, so I can't read it yet. Oh, Thomas Piketty, uh, Capital and Ideology. Yeah? I think is, go is going to be the English title, yeah. Um, Give us the thumbnail sketch of this. So, Thomas Piketty, famous French economist who wrote an earlier book called Capital in the 21st Century, in which he explains the rising inequality in the world and due to hypercapitalism, wrote a new book, another 1,300 pages. I'm not sure how he does it, where he finds the time to write these things. It's unbelievable. Yeah, right? Where he, again, gets into an updated so he, he treats the updated data on uh, inequality and, and explains all the different political and economical changes in the last uh, two decades that has led to the current state of global inequality and the, the political shifts that go with it and the tensions that are created by it. It's very, very, very interesting reading. Yeah. Does we should, we should he get into solutions at any point? Um, so I'm currently reading the last chapter, which ah. is all about solutions, apparently. Okay. Yes, okay, how to good. redistribute uh, wealth and how to create incentives um, that might enable a different way of organizing democracy and, and make sure that inequalities don't run amok and destroy everything. It's quite interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And for me, of course, this is a salient issue because uh, obviously we're seeing a rising tide of nationalism, right? We've seen these right, things yeah. in Europe. We've seen these things in the U.S. We've seen yes. a little bit of it in China as well. 
Personally, I subscribe to the theory of a lot of it is driven by desperation economics, Mm. right? More and more people are being forced against the wall. Uh, so inequality is a central issue to me, and I'm and uh, obviously Piketty's work is is just influential and interesting. So I'm waiting for the English. Um, Here I am, hamstrung. March, I think hamstrung by my English language. End of March. I think the English yeah. translation is going to hit the market. That's not in time for Davos at all. Uh, well, uh, uh, I guess they get to get away with this one. They'll talk about it next year. Right now. Yeah. Well, anyway, should we get to the conversation? Yeah, let's get to Bill. Bill. So, again, he's the chief operating officer of Air Carbon Exchange. Uh, This is a new venture that's being founded here in Singapore, uh, kind of in cooperation with, I think, a a little bit of funding from Enterprise Singapore. And we talked to him a really kind of fascinating, somewhat in the weeds conversation about carbon trading schemes and what uh, potential they have to solve our climate crisis. Um, You know, is it going to be the solution? Maybe not. Uh, Is it going to have immediate effect? It's probably a few decades out. But again, an interesting conversation about something with potential. So uh, let's go ahead and talk to Bill. All right. Bill, thanks for coming over to the studio today. My pleasure. Great having you, man. Welcome. Thank you. So tell us about the newest project that you're working on, this uh, carbon trading effort here in Singapore. Sure. Um, This started about um, a year, a little bit over a year ago. Um, My partner, who's an exchange expert, uh, having represented and headed uh, NYMEX, the CME, and established several exchanges here in Asia was approached by Enterprise Singapore to set up a carbon exchange in Singapore. Initially, um, he well, he approached me um, because uh, my background's all in the carbon markets. So together, we thought we, would, we could come up with a, with a product that made sense. Uh, the initial feeling was that there was no real reason for there to be a carbon exchange in Singapore. Um, you know, Singapore doesn't have a natural demand or a natural supply of carbon credits. Um, you know, you look at Chicago, the reason there's a commodity exchange there is because there's a flow of commodities. So our initial thought was, how can we get this to work? Uh, and we identified a potential carbon market that really makes sense for Singapore. It's called Corsia, uh, Carbon Offset and Reduction Scheme for International Aviation. So aviation represents 2.5% of global emissions. And the aviation industry is sort of headed by an an entity called ICAO, the International Civil Aviation Organization, uh, which is part of the UN, but is actually uh, older than the UN itself. Um, I guess one of their claim to fame is, you know, the the alphabet, the uh, Alpha, Bravo, Charlie. They actually came up with that after World War II. Ah, got it. So when we want to sound cool, yes, yeah, it yeah. Uses letters. You, you can thank IKEA. Thanks to them. Yeah. Wonderful. Nice. <laughs> so IKEA as an industry leader um, has, and and all of the stakeholders of IKEA are, are, are countries. Um, they have decided that they were that they're going to recap their emissions to 2020 levels by 2050. So the airline industry has promised the world that they will cap their emissions, just to be clear, to 2020 levels by 2050. Now, how are they going to do that? They're going to try and push um, 
um, what's it called, um, biofuels. They're going to try and you know create more efficient air, air airplanes, um, change routings, you know, all that sort of technology changes that they can put. But doing that it alone will not achieve this, given that the airline industry is going to double in size over the next uh, 20 years. As a matter of fact, I just read an article this morning that um, China is potentially going to quadruple in size over the next mm. um, 20 years as well. So, um, so they've created this thing called Corsia, and what it is is a carbon trading scheme. So airlines are going to be able to finance projects around the world that reduce carbon emissions get those emissions emission reductions certified and then every country will have a regulator where they give those emissions certificates to at the end of the compliance period and this is going to start in January 2021 so that's the market that we identified and because Singapore is a transportation hub uh, we felt that that is a sort of hook in terms of making Singapore relevant within the carbon space. So Singapore and your company would be the sole like exchange? We won't be the sole exchange. What we've identified, I guess our little sort of tagline is that um, we want to eliminate friction in carbon trading. One of the requests that, um, or one of the the items on the on the list when we spoke to Enterprise Singapore was they wanted it to be a digital exchange, meaning that they want us to use blockchain technology. So what's interesting is that the carbon markets, the way they operate now, um, are sufficient for the type of carbon market that exists today. So you've been reading in the papers over the last several months JetBlue is going to be carbon neutral. Uh, Microsoft just a couple of days ago said they were not only going to be carbon neutral, they're going to be carbon negative and they're going to reduce their emissions. Um, their total, they're, they're going to offset their total emissions from, the, from their beginning existence till by 2050. So it's a very ambitious goal. Um, none of this is going to be able to be done without carbon markets. Um, and so the, the issue today is that the, the, the market, the way it exists, makes sense for the size that the market is today. So let's say Virgin says, I'm going to reduce my emissions. They go to one of these bulletin boards that shows all the different projects. And the first project may be in Malaysia. It may be a project that captured emissions from a landfill site, you know, 50,000 tons, and they might be on offer at $6 a ton. So they buy that. And then they buy another one that's maybe a solar project, and they they go down the list and they just buy a couple of these things, right? Um, that is all fine and dandy when the airline is actually buying this from their marketing budget. But when Corsia comes into play, uh, this is a six billion dollar a year market. Um, this will represent at minimum zero point five percent of the total revenue of the airline. So it's definitely going to move across the hallway to the treasury. The same guys that are hedging the jet fuel are going to be hedging carbon. And they don't have the time or the inkling to be looking at sort of very at the minutia of different projects and buying them piecemeal. So we're going to move away from a very sort of bespoke model of carbon trading, and we need to move into a true exchange model. So what we do is we create 
for lack of a better term, a warehouse. And in that warehouse, we are going to put in all these carbon credits that are Corsia eligible. For every ton that's in the warehouse, there will be a corresponding ton, um, a digital token that sits on the exchange that represents a ton in the warehouse. So if the airline is short 50,000 tons or 100,000 or a million tons, they can come in at one price, pick up the asset, and they're done. Uh, if you look at most markets around the world that are compliance markets, let's just not even compliance market, let's look at, a, at, the, at the corn market and something in, in Chicago. Uh, the main buyers are not General Mills and Kellogg's and that's the main 90% of the volume is speculators and hedging companies and traders, et cetera. They provide the liquidity. So what's gonna end up happening in our minds is that this carbon token that we create is gonna be a benchmark price for carbon. Uh, initially for the airline industry because it's such a huge component of the total, uh, of the total sort of carbon bill that we, we and the future generations are gonna to have to pay. Um, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a benchmark. You might be short in California, and because this market is so liquid and so big, you might hedge your carbon exposure in, in, in Singapore. So there's a, there's a huge potential to, uh, to, for this. But all of this hinges on creating a form of scarcity, which is the airlines agreed on their own to limit their emissions. Why in the world did they agree to do that? Well, isn't um, it far too little too late? Well, there's that Sticking component Sticking to 2020 right? emissions by 2050. Right. And is the commitment even robust enough? Well, you have to start somewhere, right? Um, we were, you know, uh, you, you just like, for example, Singapore starts uh, started their, is weaning their economy into a cap and trade scheme, basically, initially by putting in a $5 um uh, a five dollar carbon tax on several companies, you know, uh, then that's going to generate about a billion dollars over the next four or five years, and then that billion dollars is going to go into a fund, and that fund is then going to invest in technologies and uh, that that are going to reduce emissions uh, for those industries, um, hmm. and. The way they're they're sort of going about it is in in increments. They're saying five dollars. It's very likely that by 2023 they might up it to ten dollars and then convert it into a free sort of flowing cap and trade scheme. Um, so there there, I think around the world what I've noticed is that there's a everybody's working with a pretty long runway, um, and you know the likes of Greta, are <laughs> they really want us to get our shit together today? Right, um, and and she's right for for sounding the alarm. But the truth of the matter is that the way climate change is being negotiated globally is basically flawed, because you've got you have a situation where a um, hundred and ninety six countries are getting together just like they did in Madrid at the at the last COP, uh, the COP. Council of Parties, um, and I was actually there, um, and um, that's that's a flawed system because if you got ten countries in a room, you'd solve the problem. 
but instead you have 196 countries that are sitting there negotiating on something, hmm. and every vote is equal. So I remember back in Cancun, if I'm not mistaken, they were trying to get to an agreement, and Bolivia was a holdout. In you know, to, and they had to have perfect consensus. Uh, yes, yes. So, so that reduces that gives you a veto. Exactly. Right, yeah. So if you're one of the countries, you know, so it it, it just uh, so it's it's flawed. So ICAO actually in the airline industry operates on a on a majority basis. Um, so they do actually get stuff done. But is it just marketing? Uh, I mean, look, I'll take it. Right, <laughs> I'm not complaining, yeah. but but there's got to be some teeth that makes people stick. So cap and trade is you create it like an artificial scarcity for something, and then you give people incentives to trade around on these credits. Where's the teeth that keeps them within the boundaries of the cap and trade system? Well, that's actually that's it's sort of funny. I mean, I I had briefly, not briefly actually. Uh, in 2012, I left the, car- the the carbon markets, and I and I sort of focused a lot on financing renewable energy projects. Uh, and I'm just now sort of coming back. And I had promised myself never to go back into the carbon markets, exactly <laughs> because of what you just said. You know, which is that there's a uh, scarcity is a function of political will. Right. Yeah. So if there is yes. political will, then there is scarcity. If there's no no political will, there isn't. I think what sort of brought me back this time around is that um, we have someone else in our corner right now that we didn't have, you know, back in 2000 when I first got into the carbon markets. Um, and th- that's and it's not Greta. I was uh, going to say Greta. It's, it's actually Mother Nature. Um, oh, you know, I there's think a she, grim way to I put it. I think she's pissed, right? And yeah. uh, and we're seeing, you know, I think this this whole idea of global warming and climate change. It's people don't realize that what we're really talking about is global weirding. And you know, uh, I'm 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 stealing a, something I heard from uh, Friedman, uh, but he he called it global weirding. Um, Thomas Friedman, Thomas of the, Friedman of the New yes. York Times, yes, of yeah. the New York Times. And uh, yeah, so it's we're we're gonna we're gonna see increasing. Um, I saw yesterday a video in Australia of this hailstorm. Yeah, I, so I've seen that. It oh, was I missed a this. crazy video. I mean, first there was a a, a huge uh, windstorm that picked up a bunch of uh, um, dirt and 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 it looked almost like out of a Hollywood movie, and then it it was followed by. You know, by by a hailstorm that left windows shattered and killed birds, and it was just insanity. Uh, so we're faced with you know increasing climate weirding. Um, what's really sad is that the people that are going to pay the price um, are the people that have the lowest sort of economic means. You know, if we have a climate event in the U.S., that's interesting because they're already praised, paying the price for carbon taxes as well. Yeah, I mean the, the 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 issue is you know you have the the you know people in Bangladesh, people in 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 Pakistan facing floods, um, and they they live a subsistence life. They go to sleep and they don't know the next morning where their food's going to come from. So when there's a major climate event, mm. this is a life and death sort of situation 
Whereas when we have a climate event in the U.S., you know, we have FEMA, we have all this other stuff, we have tax credits, we have all, all kinds of things. Um, and so we're going to be faced with with some climate refugees, we're going to be faced with some serious issues in the in the in the not so distant future. Um, so all of that, I think, is coming to roost, and it's sort of highlighting the urgency. It's you know we do have sort of um, climate um, warriors out there that are helping, but I think you know nature's is 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 probably the the biggest warrior right now. So let's hope that these exchanges do work. But I have a question about that, about how that works technically, right? So these credits that you can get your hands on, right? So you're saying Microsoft is trying to be carbon negative. So they're investing in projects that offset carbon emissions elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Who measures the efficacy of those, the actual impact of those investments? Right. So the way the market works is uh, there are several registries around the world. So there's one, for example, called Gold Standard that was set up by a bunch of NGOs. Um, I would probably say the Gold Standard's the most uh, robust uh, in terms of, of um, uh, generating carbon credits that are environmentally sound. Well, they built it into the name, didn't they? Yeah, they definitely <laughs> did. And then there's the, the Voluntary Carbon Standard, which is based out of Washington, D.C., um, and that's also a non-for-profit. See, and that's a boring name. <laughs> so what's the ratio um, in terms of dollars you put on a table? Is it like a, how many cents on a dollar actually go to reducing emissions when you make these kinds of investments? Because you have to take into account the success rate of new technologies and, and these companies, right? Yeah, well, I don't know if I, if I understand the, the question. I can maybe reply. So let me read just... Yeah. Let me rephrase. If I invest a million dollars into projects, new technologies, startups that aim to reduce emissions elsewhere on the planet, a number of those companies will fail, right? A number of those technologies will never see the light of day. So what's my expected, expected success rate? What's my... Hmm. Well, I, that's, there's not one answer. I think that the, the, the way the carbon markets work is they, they, you, you've basically cap a company and you say, look, you have to reduce, let's say, 100,000 tons of carbon. I don't care where you reduce it. We're all under the same umbrella. So if, right. you wanna, if you're based in the Netherlands and you want to do it in Malaysia, that's fine. So the beauty of the carbon markets is that it, allows, it tells the market, go find the cheapest place possible first where you're going to reduce an emission, right? So you can reduce the emissions of a power plant in Poland, a coal-fired power plant in Poland by shutting it down. But the economic cost is massive um, because people won't have any power and then the economy will come to a screeching halt and there'll be famine and all this other stuff. So how, so, so you cap that, that, that utility and you say, but you, can, you have to reduce your emission, but you can do it somewhere else, right? So that's the business I used to be in. So, I would go and find a project somewhere that would that I could reduce an emission and generate a carbon credit as cheap as possible. So let me give you an example. Just across the way here, we have palm oil mills. The mills, they have four major um, uh, byproducts. The first one is palm oil. 
the second one is palm kernel shells, which are a very sort of um, hard shell around the, the, the palm oil nut. Um, that has a very high calorific value. It's biomass, and it's typically used to generate power at the mill itself. So the mills actually have a zero emissions when it comes to um, when it comes to producing power for themselves. Um, they also produce an empty fruit bunch, which is a fibrous material that they chop up and dry and throw into the, the fields as compost. And then there's this really nasty stuff called effluent, which is basically mostly water with a very high organic compound. And what they do is they put it through a series of lagoons until the alkalinity goes down to a, a level where they can then just spray it onto the, the fields. That process of decomposition of the organics within the effluent is done in the, in the lagoons. That decomposition generates methane. Uh, methane is 21 times worse for the environment than carbon. So it, it'll stay in the atmosphere as a greenhouse gas 21, years, 21 times longer than carbon. So what a project would be is you go there and you go to the mill and you say, hey, let me cover this first lagoon. I'm going to capture the methane. Like physically cover Physically it. cover it with a tarp. I'm going to... That's pretty low tech. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, there, believe me, there, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit when it comes to carbon projects, right? right? No so, pun intended. Yeah. Yeah. So, so let me, um, you know, I'll cover that lagoon. I'll capture the methane and I'll just flare it. Because if you flare it, pardon my chemistry here, but you'll end up with basically water and, and carbon. So you're, crea- you're, you're converting huh. something that's 21 times worse for the environment into something that's one times worse for the environment. So you get 20 tons of carbon credits for every ton of methane that you flare. Hmm. Right? Now, okay. that is a relatively inexpensive project, right? Effectively, it would cost... $3 a ton to generate every single carbon credit. So flip that on its head. Um, if it, whatever money you would invest in that project to do the flaring and the capturing and all that other stuff, uh, divided by the total number of carbon credits that it would generate all right. yeah. is $3 per ton. Okay? So in a market where... Um, you know, in Europe, it, it got as high as $18 a ton. Those are very interesting projects. But when carbon credit prices collapsed to 16 cents a ton, people stopped doing this, right? Yeah. So that is, that's a typical sort of carbon right. project. Yeah. Now, if the government of Malaysia or Indonesia, I forget which country we were talking about, um, ends up and says, hey, guys, you know, we're really screwing the world by not doing this, by not capping it and flaring it, then that project ceases to be a carbon project. Because you don't get carbon projects, you don't get carbon credits for doing what you're supposed to do. You get, you get carbon credits for doing something beyond business as usual. So the first thing you mm. need to do is what's business as usual, and then compare the project versus business as usual. Interesting, yeah. 
And so the market will drive towards solving all of these low-hanging fruit problems first, Ex right? First, exactly. Uh, and then the actual credits are assigned based on the impact that you have. Right. So this. the process is um, you you go to one of these registries. Yeah. And the registry has a bunch of methodologies that they have already uh, standard methodologies. And so this would be a methane capture methodology. Mm -hmm. And so you in that methodology it tells you everything you need to do to get the project registered monitored and verified right so then you hand in first you do a project idea note then a project design document you hand in literally hundreds of pages of documentation and they give you a registration so now you have a registered project but that doesn't mean you have a carbon credit then you have to do what you actually said you were going to do And then after you do that, then only then you get an auditor to come in and audit that you did exactly what you said you were going to do under your registration. Yeah, there we go. There has you to be some check. Give the documents back to the registry and say, here's the audit. And the audit is an independent party. Um, they, call, they call them DOEs. Um, uh, companies like DNV and Tufsud and, you know, those certification agencies. Um, But, and they, but even they make their money off of the people who are running the project? Yes. Yeah. So they'll charge, you know, $15,000 to mm -hmm. come do the audit. And the consultants that did all of the paperwork will charge, you know, a couple thousand dollars to do the work. And um, it's a tangle of cross incentives there. But hopefully there's enough people well, checking back and forth. Yes. And then, and <laughs> to then make sure all everything's this, legit. Right? And then all of this is done in a purely open uh, framework. So literally my, you know, my 18-year-old daughter can go in and look at a project and comment on a project and, and whenever. So hmm. if, if the projects are not environmentally sound, they, they, they get a lot of pushback. Um, so that sounds pretty hmm. robust, right? Yeah. It does. It, does. Um, it just means that over time the ROI on the dollar will go down when, you know, we're going to run out of low-hanging fruit. Yes. And so at one then, point, we're going to yes. have to solve the real issues. Yeah, and, and then what, what needs to happen over time as well is that the cap is, needs right. to progressively be pushed exactly, down. Exactly, yeah. So, um, you know, and then and as the cap gets pushed down um, and the underlying, you know, we, we talked about a, a Polish um, power plant. As that Polish power plant gets obsolete, the price of carbon starts going up because the low-hanging fruit goes away. The, the, the cap gets pushed down by the politicians, we hope. And uh, all of those things will then make replacing that coal-fired plant, plant with another coal-fired plant not economically viable. Uh, and so the idea is that over time, sort of, it'll go away. And just to be give a little bit of history, Cap and trade is one model for reducing emissions of any kind. Yeah. The other is just flat out, like you said, we like order every coal tax. plant. Okay, carbon tax. Uh, so, but there's history behind this. Cap and trade was used successfully before. Yes. So, if you could kind of describe what that was about. Well, I actually don't know much about it, but, mm. but having grown up in the 80s, remember. Uh, the stories about acid rain in uh, in the New England states and in the border with with Canada, um, and that was that was all having to do with uh, uh, nitrous oxide and, and sulfur. Um, 
knocks and socks, as they call it. Mm-hmm. And so the U.S. Um, instituted a cap-and-trade scheme where utilities were capped and then could trade their savings. And in doing so today, uh, acid rain is no longer an issue. You know, we, we, brought, we brought that under control. So the same thing um, is actually the U.S. that, that, that su- suggested to the Council of Parties that the Kyoto Protocol should be a cap-and-trade scheme. The problem with the carbon tax is that, you know, you're, you're, there are no, there's no market involved, right? So you're, you're telling right, a yeah. company, I'm going to tax you $10 for every ton of carbon that you, that you emit. And then that $10 goes into the, the, right. the, the treasury of the country. And then you're, you're hoping that the country has, invests that, that $10 in a way that will help climate change. And that's, that's a fool's yeah. errand. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. You know, that's that's absolutely a fool's errand. I mean, I, uh, you know, I have actually friends that work in this um, uh, the the green fund that was set up by the uh, by the Council of Parties um, back in um, oh, man, when was that set up? Well, several years ago, where all the countries were putting in. A billion dollars a year or something. Um, the, the numbers are are pretty sad in terms of, you know, the infrastructure that mm-hmm. they have set up in South Korea. Uh, that's where the headquarters for this green fund is. Um, I think if if we coldly look at the impact that the green fund has had, vis-a-vis climate change, mm-hmm. uh, it's it. it Mm. It would be dismal. Um, I haven't heard. And any. the Green Fund was a government-led investment. It's a UN company. It was a UN investment, and I'm. It's just. I'm. I'm just forgetting which one of the of the COP meetings um, they decided to create this, this this Green Fund basically that would, that um, just one more big development bank that's that's focused on on climate change yeah so there's this massive infrastructure that was set up in uh in korea and they had a they had i remember they had some consultations uh where they went around the world and had stakeholders come and ask what is it that you would want to see and not want to see with with the green climate fund and and my my big thing i participated in a couple of those was you know what I find is that all of these entities, what they end up doing is they crowd they crowd out um, traditional funding. You know the project that I just described in 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 Malaysia, um, the green fund may do it. Well, that project has mm. like a you know twenty five percent IRR. We don't need a green fund to do those projects. Mm. So the biggest problem with a lot of these multilaterals that are you know they're they're crowding out private investment. Right, yeah. That's a very difficult thing to tackle. Hmm. I, it, it kills me to be so cynical about uh, direct government action, but uh, just given my politics. But, <laughs> yeah. but, but that's why I look at the history. It's worked before, right? Having a cap-and-trade scheme yes. in well, place like you said, works before. Like you and, said and, I, and I'm all for private incentives to solve these problems. But again, just the time scale scares me. Like you but said, bit, I mean, if it's yeah. decades down the road. Yeah, exactly. Jeez, we yeah, have, yeah. Well, the flip side of it is the the mortgage market in the U.S. 
you know, we let sort of the we we deregulated and let the you know let the the the, the crazies sort of run the asylum. Yes. Um, so there is there is a a you know a counter argument to just letting the markets do their work. Um, There's careful yeah, sure. balance well, points. Well, yeah, I think you need incentives and you need uh, regulation with teeth, like you said earlier, right? Yeah. 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 That's that's the only way to do it. An enforcement mechanism. Yeah. That that exists outside of yeah. the markets all by themselves. Yeah, but definitely don't expect the governments to take money from the most carbon heavy companies <laughs> yeah. and invest it wisely into reducing emissions. But you know yeah, what? I'm I'm on board just, with that. Yeah. That just doesn't, doesn't make take sense. Much right? to persuade me on that. Yeah, it's yeah. crazy. <laughs> but you know what's interesting is actually this is a a, a, a Europe Europe US thing. What I what I find is that in the U.S., um, the innovation actually happens from companies and states before it happens at the, at the federal level. The federal level is always ca uh, catching up. So you look at the U.S. right now, even within the carbon space, you have, again, Microsoft saying what they said just a couple of days ago, um, you have a very robust uh, California trading market. Uh, you have a you know um, uh, markets in in uh, um, north of California in uh, Oregon and 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 Washington State, um, and all of this is is happening despite a federal government that's you know throwing stones um, at 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 the even mention of climate change right whereas in europe it actually i've i've my experience is it goes the other way around the government are the one that you know for example came up with the european trading scheme and then that vacuum was filled by the companies um so that is my sort of um i guess um hope that the u.s even though the u.s rhetoric is is horrible um it's probably because our system's different. You right. know? I, yeah. I think we're gonna I think we're gonna be okay. And of course the other big region is Asia, but you're working on these projects here, so I mean there's yes. robust projects in the States, Europe doing well, but bringing it to Asia is kind of that next next step. Well, Asia is actually the biggest problem with regards to climate change, right? Hmm. So we have a billion people in Asia without access to power. Hmm. Um, it's a lot of people to bring right. online. Uh, so yeah. you have to, you have to bring the, those people. Need to, um, as I, I believe I said earlier to you, um, you know, China is is going to their air their air travel is going to quadruple over the next twenty mm -hmm. years. Um, you know, they're they're creating a new middle class the size of some European countries on an annual basis. Um, <laughs> yeah. And all of these people are going to want cars. All of these people are going to want to travel. All of these people are going to, um, you know, they, they're going to change the world economics. And all of this is happening within a carbon-constrained world. So sort of circling back to what we're, what we're putting together is we're just trying to make the markets easier for uh, within the reality of a carbon-constrained world. Well, then maybe China will invest in solving the low-hanging fruit problems uh, of the West. 
No, but they do. They've got, you know, China is China's approach from a cap and trade scheme is sort of interesting. They have 17 different exchanges and each exchange operates independent of the other. Oh. And so the carbon markets huh. are extremely regional and they don't necessarily uh, trade off each other very well. That's interesting. Um, so it's... Um, it's, but that could it's be a bit more, of a head scratcher. It's to more be of the U.S. model, though, right? U.S. is doing. It is, except may, may, the central government right? mandated seventeen of them. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> it's not because the market wanted yeah. it, right? Right. Yeah. Right. So right. it's a very, um, it's a bit of a head scratcher to me. I'm, I'm not much of an expert when it comes to China, um, which is interesting being here. But my feeling has always been that if someone in China is offering me any sort of a deal, it's because all the Chinese have said no to that deal already. Ah. So I would be <laughs> And a, they might know would, something. Exactly. <laughs> right, I, right. I would be a fool to, you know, rush in <laughs> yeah. after that one. So. Right, right. <laughs> well, Bill, this was fascinating. Really appreciate right. your uh, you. taking yeah, the you time. Thank you. Thank you for the great insights. I really no, appreciate it. No, pleasure. It. Yeah. Well, thanks again to Bill Pazos, Chief Operating Officer of Air Carbon Exchange, coming in. Yeah. Fascinating conversation. Really interesting, man. Really interesting to learn more about the technicalities of these exchanges and to, about how it works. It, was, it wasn't quite clear to me, actually. Well, and it's in. more than we could possibly get into in one conversation. Yeah. Right. So, uh, you know, maybe we'll have Bill on some, for some follow-up at some point. Uh, but uh, I think more of an intro right to this right. whole world of yeah. our carbon trading exactly. and, and, and yeah. the role that it might play with some specificity like about specific projects all the way up to the global scene and and what's happening so well this is the time you know where we uh, start to talk about some good news and uh, i'm gonna change up the good news just a little bit i'm gonna Oi. bring in something gongshi gongshi Oh. Yeah, so tis the season. The end of the week here is uh, Chunjia. Chunjia is the spring festival in the China. Spring festival? Yeah, and this yeah. is it. This is, a, this is like a Christmas carol for, uh, for China, for the spring festival, for the Lunar New Year, as it's sometimes called. And it is right there. Gong shi wow. gong shi gong shi ni. Wow, maybe that's our good news this week. I, I think it is. Yeah. Yeah, so we've got a new year beginning here. Uh, again, called the Chunjia Festival, the Spring Festival. You would say Chunjia Kwai Le. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> and that means Happy Spring Festival. Uh, and this is when uh, Chinese families get together, uh, as we talked about earlier, and they travel and they see one another and they have big meals and they reconnect and they have a, a good old time. Oh, and they clean their house. Believe me, there's all kinds of things. Coronaviruses. <laughs> and, and, and you wear masks because of right. coronaviruses. <laughs> anyway, this song, you can look it up. Uh, this uh, artist, he's a Singaporean uh, jazz uh, piano player, Jeremy Montero. Uh, so this is his version of that, thanks to him. Oh, um, I just, nice. I'm playing it, so you know, hopefully he won't be coming at me. But I'm playing it, so you should get it. Smooth. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, happy Lunar New Year. Happy Lunar New Year, everybody. And we'll go out uh, on a little bit of uh, gongshi gongshi here. 